I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. We came, we saw, we kicked his ass. I am Conor McLeod of the Clan McLeod. I was born in 1518 in the village of Glenfinnan on the shores of Loch Shield. I am immortal. I suppose we have to register you as a lethal weapon. Your move, creep. What is your major malfunction, Nubnut? It says 100% guaranteed, you moron. Mister, if you don't shut up, I'm gonna kick 100% of your ass. This town needs an enema. Who are you, then? Lying in the ointment, huh? A monkey in the wrench. A pain in the ass. Greed is good. Wait a minute. Wait a minute, Doc. Huh? Are you telling me that you built a time machine? Hey, everybody! We're all gonna get late! Excellent! <laughs> good morning, Vietnam! Life moves pretty fast. You don't stop and look around once in a while. You could miss it. Surely you can't be serious. I am serious. Now don't call me Shirley. I'm not bad. I'm just drawn that way. Your clothes. Give them to me. Kiss my ass. Son, your ego is writing checks your body can't cash. Inconceivable! I've got a little challenge for you, Sark. A new recruit. He's a tough case, but I want him treated in the usual manner. Train him for the games. Let him hope for a while and blow him away. Game over, man! It's game over! Hello, bonjour, aloha, konnichiwa, and willkommen to episode, uh, un, Catra of every 80s movie ever made, or Emem, if you don't have enough time or patience to say the whole thing out loud. My name is Ben Bowers. Hello. How are you? I am fine. Thanks for joining me as I attempt to watch nearly 1,080s movies in an effort to find out if that decade really was as good as we all think it was. I've collated my list from the Wikipedia page for 1980s in film and the 80s movies website www.fast-rewind.com. Once a movie's been randomly selected, I'll then try and find out not only who was involved, but what else they've done and how they're getting on nowadays. There'll be some review notes looking at the film as objectively as possible with a 30-year context from someone living in the UK, mind you. And if you're lucky, there may even be some secret bonus content featuring some music from, or at least linked to, the film in question. If you've got any recommendations for more obscure 80s films that don't appear on those two pages, you can email me on emem at hotmail.co.uk, that's E-E-M-E-M, or get hold of me on Twitter using at every80smovie, that's every80smovie, or simply hashtag banging on about Jan Hammer. Yeah, don't say I didn't warn you about that. But that's for later. Right now, let's get on with episode four. The film. Secret Admirer, released in 1985. With a budget estimated at $2 million, it grossed $2.4 million on its opening weekend, towards a total US box office of $8.6 million. The director. David Greenwald, born in 1949 and attractively nicknamed Greeny. Secret Admirer was his directorial debut, but he had previous screenplay credits with involvement in the 1982 comedy thriller Wacko and co-writer on the 1983 sex comedy Class, starring Rob Lowe of Young Blood in Episode 2 fame and Jacqueline Bissett. 
Following Secret Admirer, Greenwald moved into television direction and writing, dropping back into feature film work to co-direct the 1989 flop Rude Awakening, starring Cheech Marin and Eric Roberts. He then became producer on the TV series The Commish in the early 90s, which led to co-exec producer for eight episodes of The X-Files, before moving from consulting producer to executive producer over a number of years on Buffy the Vampire Slayer and its spin-off Angel, in which he was also head writer. He's also credited with co-creating the supernatural drama series Grimm and had time to write and direct a number of episodes within all of those series. He works quite closely with Jim Koof, with whom he co-wrote Secret Admirer, a more recognised screenwriter with a number of big titles under his belt, more of which on a bit. The Stars C. Thomas Howell. The C stands for Christopher. He was born in 1966 and he plays Michael, the lead role. His father was a stunt coordinator and rodeo performer and C.T., as he likes to be known, grew up wanting to be a stuntman, even performing on TV at the age of four. He became a state junior rodeo champion at the age of 12 and started to pick up work as a stunt actor, gaining work on Spielberg's E.T. in 1982 as a child stuntman, stunt child, which garnered him a small supporting role in the film. The following year, Francis Ford Coppola gave him one of the lead roles in The Outsiders, which earned him massive critical acclaim and front covers on teen magazines throughout the US. He appeared in 1984's Red Dawn, was really close to getting the lead for Back to the Future, believe it or not, took the lead role in Secret Admirer in 85, and appeared in The Hitcher with Rutger Hauer and Soul Man in 1987, the latter of which is well known for its casual 80s racism, and was a pretty good cause for the slowing down of his rise to meteoric stardom due to its controversy. Since the turn of the 90s, Howell's continued to work solidly, but he's mainly a B-movie staple of schlocky sci-fi films you'll tend to see on sci-fi. He's an outspoken supporter of The Asylum, a production company known primarily for a pretty awful straight-to-DVD big movie rip-offs. He's dabbled in directing with no success, and between 2003 and 2005 became painfully thin following an operation to remove three feet of his intestines after his appendix burst. Ouch. Laurie-Anne Lachlan was born in 1964. She plays Tony, Michael's secret admirer. Oh, shit. Uh, plot spoiler. She began her career as a print model from the age of 12. In her early teens, she appeared in a number of print ads and moved into TV commercials. I'm going to cough. <coughs> Excuse me. Before landing a role in three episodes of the ABC series, The Edge of Night. Don't think I've heard of it. And a role in Amityville 3D. I've heard of it. Wish I hadn't. After Secret Admirer, she scored a couple of minor roles before landing a contract for six episodes in the popular TV series Full House in 1988. After receiving a really positive audience reaction, she was brought on full-time and worked on 153 episodes until it finished completely in 1995. More TV work followed, but projects tended to get cancelled after only one season, until she co-created, produced and starred in 2004's Summerland, which lasted two seasons and even included an appearance by a Secret Admirer co-star, C. Thomas Howell. She also spent four years on the Beverly Hills 90210 spin-off series, titled 90210, from 2008 to 2012. She's married to an Italian fashion designer, so safe to say she also dresses pretty well. Kelly Preston, who plays Deborah Ann, the subject of Michael's affections, was born Kelly Kamalawela Smith in Hawaii in 1962. There's some controversy as to whether she or Laurie Loughlin lost out to Brooke Shields for the lead role in The Blue Lagoon, but around this time, Kelly started using the surname Preston. To be honest, Smith isn't the problem, Kelly. Discovered at the age of 16 by a fashion photographer, she garnered interest in the 1983 adaptation of Stephen King's Christine, Secret Admirer and Mischief in 1985, and Space Camp the following year. She's appeared with Arnie in Twins, Tom Cruise in Jerry Maguire, and Eddie Murphy in... uh, Holy Man. 
but there's some big names. She met John Travolta while filming The Experts in 1987, and they eventually married in 1991, but not before she'd had a brief engagement with Charlie Sheen in 1990, which ended shortly after he accidentally shot her in the arm. Yeah, seriously. In 2000, she appeared with Travolta in the mega-flop that is Battlefield Earth. They're both Scientologists, and their first marriage ceremony was declared invalid as it was conducted by a Scientology minister. She's the proud owner of a Razzie Award as a result of that infamous sci-fi film, but she reclaimed some pride after appearing in the pretty decent Sky High in 2005. She's popped up in a couple of Travolta movies, Old Dogs from Paris with Love, maybe she's keeping a bead on him, but she seems recently to be focusing on her family, which is understandable, as the couple went through a very public trauma when their son Jet died from Kawasaki's disease in 2009. This revelation was only shared when they had to testify in court following an extortion attempt linked with their son's death. Nice. Dee Wallace, also known as Dee Wallace Stone, plays Michael's mother. She was born Deanna Bowers in 1948. What an awesome surname that is. She's best known for Scream Queen? Scream Queen roles in her early career in the late 70s and early 80s. She appeared in The Hills Have Eyes in 1979, The Howling in 81, Cujo in 83, and Critters in 86. Her biggest role is most definitely as Elliot's mother in Spielberg's E.T. in 82, but she never really kicked on from there and is seen more as a cult horror actress. She appears regularly at horror festivals for freaky fans. She's also a self-help guru after a somewhat difficult personal life. Her husband Christopher Stone died of a heart attack in 1995. Rather spookily, at the time she was filming Peter Jackson's massively underrated The Frighteners, the plot of which features unexplained heart attack deaths. Go see the film, it's absolutely brilliant, but man, I'm really going to look at her role in a completely different light now. Clifford Tobin de Young, or Cliff, was born in 1945. Prior to his acting career, he was the lead singer of the 1960s rock group Clear Light, which played with more famous artists like The Doors, Jimi Hendrix and Janis Joplin. After the band broke up, he starred in the Broadway production of Hair and the Tony Award wing in Sticks and Bones. After four years in New York, he moved back to California to star in the television film Sunshine in 1973 about a young mother dying of cancer. His own song from the film, My Sweet Lady, reached number 17 on the Billboard Top 100 the following year. Since then, he's appeared in a number of movies and shows, and there's a very good chance you'll recognise his face, in particular his mahoosive forehead, if not his name, even though he doesn't often land major roles. He played the kid's dad in 1986's Flight of the Navigator and has appeared in CSI, Alias, Jag, Murder, She Wrote, amongst others. Fred Ward, who played Deborah Ann's father, is part Cherokee. Before turning to acting, he spent three years in the US Air Force, worked as a lumberjack in Alaska and broke his nose three times as a boxer, which all goes some way to explain the lumpy, grizzled face he's got. He began his acting career in 1979 alongside Clint Eastwood in Escape from Alcatraz, and other notable roles include 1981's Southern Comfort, The Right Stuff in 1983, and an attempt to carve out an action hero franchise with Remo, Unarmed and Dangerous in 1985. It flopped massively, but it did highlight a talent at comic timing, which came to the fore in the always entertaining Tremors in 1990, and a Golden Globe Award, amongst other ensemble actors, in the satirical Shortcuts in 1993. He continued to work on and off, Chain Reaction in 1996, Road Trip in 2000 are probably the most recognisable, before taking a few years off in the mid-noughties. He returned to acting in 2006, appearing in ER and Grey's Anatomy, and continues to dabble in mid-to-low-budget character roles. Casey Szymaskow, born in 1961, is the son of a Polish underground fighter who survived the Sachsenhausen concentration camp. 
His sister Nina is also an actress, and his brother Corky is a reporter for the New York Daily News. His best-known roles are as 3D in Back to the Futures 1 and 2, Billy Tessio in 1986's Stand By Me, and Charlie Bowdra in 1988's Young Guns. His debut feature film was 1983's Class, co-written by David Greenwald and Jim Cooth. Well, fancy that. He had a recurring role in NYPD Blue as Captain Pat Fraker and has since lent his voice to a number of video games, including Grand Theft Auto San Andreas and Red Dead Revolver. So, as mentioned earlier, it was co-written by David Greenwall and Jim Koof. Born in 1951, Koof's first credit is co-writer for the schlocky 1981 horror The Boogans. Great name. He then hooked up with Greenwalt and worked on Wacko under the fancy pseudonym M. James Koof Jr. and Class before co-writing Secret Admirer. Koof then hit big with a screenplay for the surprise 1987 hit Stakeout, directed by John Badham and starring Richard Dreyfuss and Emilio Estevez, earning him an Edgar Award in 1988 for Best Motion Picture Screenplay. 87 also saw the critically acclaimed but financially disappointing sci-fi thriller The Hidden, written by Koof under another pseudonym, the slightly more boring-sounding Bob Hunt. The Hidden 2 was released in 1993, coincidentally the same year as Another Stakeout. In 1997, he wrote and directed the highly regarded Gang Related, noted for being Tupac Shakur's last film performance and also one of the few good Jim Belushi movies. He then appeared to lose all his early writing talent when he wrote the scripts for the first Rush Hour and National Treasure films, before he joined up with Greenwater again to work as producer on Angel and Grimm. Michael Ryan, played by C. Thomas Howell, is a high school student who receives an anonymous love letter on the last day before summer vacation. Michael is obsessed with Deborah Ann Thimple, played by Kelly Preston, who's the class beauty, and his best friend Roger, played by Casey Shamaskow, convinces him that the letter is from her, even though she only dates older jocks. However, Michael is also totally oblivious that his friend Tony Williams, played by Laurie Lachlan, is clearly in love with him. The letter ends up in a reference book belonging to Michael's father, George, played by Cliff the Young, who reads it in his night school class and believes it to be from the teacher, who's also his neighbour, Elizabeth, played by Lee Taylor Young, who is also Deborah Ann's mother. When he approaches her about it at the end of the class, she misreads his advances during a conversation chock full of double meanings. Michael writes Deborah Ann an anonymous love letter in return and asks Tony to give it to her. Tony sneaks a look at it and realises the letter is really poorly written and unromantic, Typical bloke, Michael had copied words from greeting cards, so she rewrites it and gives it to Deborah Ann, who's instantly smitten. Unfortunately, Michael's letter ends up in Elizabeth's handbag, which is then uncovered by a police officer husband, Lou, played by Fred Ward, who instantly becomes suspicious that his wife is having an affair, confirmed when he follows her that night and sees her walking out with George. Having said that, she's only walking out with him because she read that letter that night during the class and realises George has strong feelings for her. You still following this? Meanwhile, Lou shows the letter to George's wife, Connie, played by Dee Wallace Stone, and proposes that they expose the adulterers. While all this malarkey's going on, Michael still hasn't received a reply from Deborah Ann, so he writes a second letter, which Tony yet again rewrites. So, Tony arranges a meeting between the two, and at the time, Michael tells Deborah Ann that he wrote the love letters, because she didn't initially believe him, and she finally agrees to a real date culminating in a clumsy fumble in a car, during which they're almost caught by Debbie's jock college quasi-boyfriend, Steve. Tony intervenes by pretending to seduce Steve, and then later ditches him. 
After a short while, Michael realised that Deborah is actually snobby and shallow, not like he expected her to be, and they break up after his birthday party when he realises he can't actually sleep with her and she attends for his birthday present. At the same time, the four parents end up on the same table during a bridge evening. After George inadvertently makes a slip of the tongue and insinuates the affair between him and Elizabeth, Lou flips out and assaults him, creating absolute chaos in the house, with Connie wailing and Elizabeth in a panic. Later that night, when Lou confronts his wife about the letter, a returning Deborah Ann overhears him reading the words and tearfully accosts her father for reading her private mail. Michael also blasts his parents for reading his letter and invading his privacy. As a result, both couples realise their mistakes and reunite. Just as the new semester is about to start, Michael compares what he thought was Deborah's love letter to Tony's handwriting and finally realises that Tony wrote the original love letter all along. He races to her home, but oh no, he's told that she's left for a study programme aboard a ship that will keep her away for a full year. Forgetting that telephones, mail and other boats exist, Michael rushes to the dockyard, but only after a brief scuffle with Steve delays him further and increases the tension. The ship continues to sail away as he reaches the dock and screams his love for Tony, and in desperation he dives into the water, but he still can't reach the ship. Realising he's finally twigged the truth, and that she still loves him, despite him being a dopey bastard, Tony dives into the water herself. The lovers embrace and kiss as the end credits roll. Aww. So here are some things you might not know about the movie Secret Admirer. 1. C. Thomas Howell did all his own stunts. Sounds impressive, but it's not really that much of an action flick. Having said that, he does do some pretty impressive leaping off fences and jumping onto garage roofs. It's not quite the Bourne films, admittedly, but it's still about 20 years before the word parkour came into everyone's vocabulary. 2. During a days on Full House, Laurie Lachlan featured in an episode which was pretty much a straight rip-off of Secret Admirer. 3. Corey Haim, the well-known 80s actor from movies such as The Lost Boys and Licence to Drive, and who always got associated with Corey Feldman, makes an early career appearance as Michael's younger, annoying brother. I've only just discovered that he died in 2010 after a life filled with drug and mental issues. A tragic bastard. And finally, number four. Doug Savant briefly appears as a guy trying to make out with a girl in a car who's interrupted by Deborah Ann's boyfriend. Don't recognise the name Doug Savant? Well, from 1992 to 97, he played Matt Fielding on Melrose Place, one of the first openly gay characters on mainstream TV. And from 2004 to 2012, he played Tom Scarvo, husband to Felicity Huffman's character in the hit TV show Desperate Housewives. If you're a straight, single man, there's a very good chance that all of that meant fuck all to you. Review notes. So here are some thoughts I jotted down while I was watching the movie. 1. Over the opening credits, Tony's writing the letter. Well, you don't know it's Tony, but you do eventually. The second line of the letter quite clearly reads, I'll not give you this letter anyway. 30 seconds later, it cuts to her pushing an envelope through Michael's locker door. Make up your mind, love. 2. Michael's got a really cool hideaway for him and his mates in the loft of his parents' garage. It's full of cool junk, and when I was 12, I really wanted something like that in my house. But if I hid out of my loft, I'd just get a mouthful of fiberglass. Great. 3. Michael and his mates are a bunch of those guys that I tend to really like in movies. They rip the piss out of each other, but they'll clearly stick up for each other when it comes down to it. I always connect with groups of friends portrayed like that, and I just love it. 4. Man, I still think jackets with rolled up sleeves look cool, sad as that may be. I could be the only person on earth that thinks that nowadays, but I'd love it if it came back into fashion, because then when I go out nowadays, I wouldn't look like so much of a dick. <laughs> 
5. It's Tony's idea for Michael to write the letter back to Deborah Ann, and then she rewrites it. Why? Where's the logic? Why would she want to string everybody along when she wrote the original letter and clearly loves Michael? Well, here's the answer, because otherwise there wouldn't be a film. Laurie Loughlin plays the character really, really well, and she's easily the standout performance, but in order to drive the plot forward, she's got to make certain decisions that really stretch credibility. 6. If this film was remade today, it would be called Friendzone, the movie. 7. It was actually pretty well done how the letters get passed around and picked up by accident. It could have been really, really contrived, but it's clear it was actually thought about beforehand, and it's not just a mythical gust of wind picks up the letter and throws it through a window. 8. When I was 12, I had a massive crush on Tony in this film. Now I'm married, and don't tell my wife, but I think I still do now. Although given that I'm in my 30s and she's supposed to be 16, is that a bit wrong? Ah, but she was 20 at the time of filming, so don't go calling the cops just yet. Cool. Either way, she's much more pretty than Deborah Ann, and Michael is even more of a doofus because of that. 9. There's a point where Tony's sat on the overlook, drinking beer and watching Michael drive up with Deborah Ann. She looks down, she takes a swig of a beer and says, I hate you, Michael. Uh, you put him in that position, Tony. 10. Fred Ward's twitchy vein on the side of his head should get a separate acting credit. It's actually quite freaky. 11. Steve, the jock boyfriend of Deborah Ann, looks like a gorilla. Seriously, he's got like tr tiny eyes and a protruding brow. He's, he's proper Neanderthal. The actor in question is a guy called Scott McGuinness, whose biggest role was alongside Uhura in Star Trek III, The Search for Spock. Other than that, he's not done much work and apparently now directs and produces an online news channel for kids. That is when he's not drawing on cables and discovering fire. If you're listening, Scott, which is highly unlikely, I know. I apologise, mate. It's only a joke. 12. It's, it's quite a tight film. There's very little flabbiness and it's only 90 odd minutes long. The plot fairly zips along and it very rarely drags, so kudos to Greenwalt and Koof on, uh, on getting that down pat. And number 13. The gap between Michael giving up chasing Tony and nicking off Steve's car doesn't quite equate to the gap between Tony's boat setting off and him arriving at the dock, particularly given the speed Michael drives in Steve's Porsche, unless Tony's parents were driving at 200 miles an hour in a station wagon. Don't fucking think so somehow. Now, this is a great example of thinking back at a film with rose-tinted glasses on. I was really looking forward to seeing this movie again. I hadn't seen it in about 15 years, and my memories of it were incredibly fond, but unfortunately, it doesn't really hold up. The soundtrack, as much as it kills me to say it, isn't as good as I thought it was. It's dated incredibly badly. The clothing, Jesus. The acting and the directing is generally pretty poor, and it, it just looks quite cheap too. But the story is tight, and it doesn't outstay its welcome. There's actually a really good structure there around the misunderstandings over the letter, and on the whole it works out pretty well. The main issue I have with it now is I'm not sure who the film's targeted at. It's marketed as a teen romantic comedy, except there's a lot of emphasis on the parents, which probably won't interest a teen audience that much. However, there's kids mucking about, and there's boobs randomly and loads of swearing, which might put an older audience off, so I don't really know where the core audience is based. As a kid, I loved the group of friends and their hideout and Laurie Lachlan. As an adult, I was more interested in the potentials of the relationships between the adults themselves and wanted to see that develop more. It's an interesting concept that's not sure who it wants to play with and suffers as a result. 
I'll give Greenwalt and Coop credit, though, for trying to make a teen sex comedy with not that much sex and more of an emphasis on love and feelings and relationships. It's actually quite sweet, but it's not quite sweet enough. The remake or sequel. No remake or sequel to speak of, but it came out in a time of teen sex comedies that all run along similar lines anyway. I mean, there's a sweet, innocent side to this film, which was absent to many coarser movies of the time. One could even argue that we're in the same situation nowadays with that glut of crude comedies that seem to be popping up on a daily basis. I could quite easily see this being remade, maybe not under the same title as it's not really a well-known enough film to attract viewers purely on its name alone, but with some young, relatively unknown actors playing in a sweet, light comedy of errors, that might even go down well with families, although maybe not young kids. Personally, I'd place a bit more emphasis on the relationship between the parents, making the letter an opportunity for them to discover a spark that was missing from both relationships that, as the misunderstandings come to light, make them realise they need the spark from their other partners rather than looking elsewhere. Trouble is, that may limit the audience even further. Or you could push it even more and aim it at the older grey generation, you know, the 60 plus crowd, and target the Blue Ridge Brigade that always seems to be forgotten by mainstream cinema and yet always gives big box office when something targeted at them gets released. Stick Billy Connolly in there and Judy Dench and, and you'd make a bomb. You know what, I could even see this as a British movie, maybe starring teen actors from something like Hollyoaks, although the more cynical amongst you could argue that the plot turns up in Hollyoaks all the fucking time. Listen, it wouldn't make a shit ton of money at the box office, but it wouldn't cost a bomb to make. And if you had a tight enough script, this could attract teenagers and parents, enough to at least turn a decent profit. Sound clips. Clip, clip, clipping away. Here's a few clips that caught my eye. Uh, hang on, ear. Number one, within five minutes of the film starting, there's some sudden and rather surprising casual homophobia. Well, using the word homo as a derogatory term at least. I haven't heard that word in fucking ages, which is a really good thing, but by heck did it surprise me. It doesn't crop up at all for the rest of the film, which makes it even more jarring, but it's a real sign of how society's moved on from that time period. Here's the second throwaway instance of it. Madam, so slick, what are you going to do tonight? Does she really like that guy? Debbie, I think, likes the idea of going out with older guys. Yeah, what about you? Me? Oh, I have no standards. I mean, I'd even go out with you. Tony, we've been friends too long. Besides, I do have standards, so that'll never happen. Homo. Yeah, that's classy, Tony. Real classy. Number two. One of Michael's friends is sat up in the loft and reading a Playboy mag. And as pointed out, Playboy mags aren't for reading. But little do they know that this Playboy mag can clearly see 20 years into the future. <sighs> Summer. Great. I got no job. I got no woman. I got no money. I'll probably be spending the next three months with you guys. Well, I'm depressed, fellas. Uh-oh, Barry's depressed. Yeah, right. Listen to this. Three international banks predict dire consequences for the European community if the dollar takes a sudden plunge. <laughs> You're too fucking weird for words, Ricardo. <laughs> You're abusing this magazine, Ricardo. This magazine isn't for reading, it's for beating off. <laughs> <gasps> Spooky. How little did they know. Number three. I love the way Howell delivers the line. Uh, that comes up. I had similar scenarios in my early years and I had the same frustrations myself. Where is she? I'll find her. She's gotta be in here somewhere. Eureka. Second floor balcony, up to the right. 
shit. He's got his hand on her ass. That should be my hand. Man, she's such a slapper. Number four. I don't know why, but anyone who says, hey, asshole, in a movie just cracks me up. Love it. Although, I'm not too sure about Roger's comeback, though. Number five, Laurie and Michael are sat under the stars. It's quite a sweet conversation, but this is one of the first times where Laurie acts totally illogically in order to drive the plot forward. I can't believe I said those things to Deborah Ann Fimple. I mean, why didn't I just walk up to her and say, hey, Debbie, I'm an asshole? Well, I think she knows. Fucking Roger. Jesus, how could I believe that guy? Telling me that Deborah Ann Fimple wrote me a love letter? Jesus Christ. She wrote you a letter? I bet it was Ricardo. I'm going to kick his ass. What did this letter say? Everything I said to Debbie. Mm, sounded pretty good to me. It wasn't good. It was great. It was the best thing I ever read. It was like... Tender as the night, or the way we were. <sighs> Ricardo's dead meat. You know, this isn't really that comfortable. Oh, here. Oh, thanks. <sighs> what a night. <laughs> we thrashed Roger's van. You know, maybe the letter's real. Maybe somebody really is in love with you. I just wish I knew why I loved her so much. I mean, I think about her all the time. She's so beautiful. Everything about her, she's perfect. I hate Steve Powers. Yeah, she's probably letting him feel her up right now. Ouch. Oh. I'm sorry. Well, I guess things could be worse. I mean, I could be at the hospital having Steve's fist removed from my larynx. <laughs> Thanks for saving me. Just fucking tell him, Laurie, will you? Just out with it. Say it. Get on with it. Then we can all go home. And then it's like the world's shortest feature film. Anyway, number six, cheeky little Corey Haim here, and I love the way he says, radical. Long to have your arms around me and feel your body. Whoa, radical. Morning, sweetheart. Hi, Mom. What are you doing up so early? Summer vacation, got a lot to do. Like what? Bunch of guys are meeting at the park, going to try to pick up some women. What are you going to do with them after you pick them up? I don't know. What did Dad used to do with you? Stuff I hope you won't try till you're a lot older. What's that? 
breakfast. Looks disgusting. It's good. Want to try? Gonna fix you some eggs and toast. Yeah, I've got a bad feeling I'll be having this conversation in a few years' time with my children, I'm sure. I'm really not looking forward to that. Number seven. One of the strongest points in the film here. George has read the letter, thinking it's from Elizabeth, who teaches him at night school. And what follows is one of those classic double-meaning conversations where one party's talking about something completely different to what the other thinks it means. It's really well done on all counts, both in terms of writing and the acting. Elizabeth? I think we better talk. I'll help you any way I can, George. What are you having trouble with? Elizabeth, my God. I mean, sooner or later, you have to ask yourself if it's worth it. Yes, George, it is. You've got guts. George, it's not that hard. You just have to be willing to spend the time. I know, I know, but I'm married. I am too. But I'm really taking the time. And it's well worth it. There's this great sense of accomplishment. Wait, uh, you've been through this before? George, I've been doing this for years. George, are you worried about Connie? You have the most understanding wife in the world. You just have to give her a little time. You know, I had that problem with Lou in the beginning. At first, they're a little threatened. That's only natural. And then they get used to it. And after a couple of years, they get behind it 100% once they realize what a really good thing it is. My God. Where have I been? <laughs> George, we've known each other a long time. Don't back out now, George. You're absolutely right, Liz. We have known each other a long time, and I can't deny that I haven't felt like this, too, but I never thought that you, Elizabeth... You... I, I'm, I'm sorry. I'll call you next week. Number eight. The first time we meet Fred Ward as Deborah Ann's dad, and it's awesome. It is literally one line. You know exactly who the character is and what he's like. Sure, man, huh? Take your hands off my daughter, Fruit Lips. Oh, hi, Mr. Uh, Lieutenant Fimple. How are you, sir? Okay, Jocko. What about yourself? Holy shit, you're getting pretty big. What you curling these days beside your hair, handjob? Daddy. One fifteen, three sets of ten, sir. What's two and two? Daddy. Just kidding, Steve Reno. <laughs> uh, one more thing, little boy. Oh, God. You get her pregnant, I'll blow your dick off. Daddy! I'll blow your dick off. <laughs> loving it. Absolutely loving it. Number nine. Laurie's just left Michael, depressed because Michael's written Deborah Anna letter back and clearly has the hots for her. She comes home, she walks into her bedroom all depressed, and she turns the stereo on. Safe to say, even if it is the great Jan Hammer, this is kind of an odd choice to have on as background music, particularly given the emotion the scene's trying to portray.
new business. Yeah, I'm feeling really depressed, so I'm going to put some chasing music on. Doesn't really fit. Number 10. This is the point at which Michael begins to realise that Deborah Ann is probably not the girl for him. It's just a tad of an overreaction to spilling food on yourself. Don't take Tony, for instance. I like Tony a lot, don't get me wrong. She does not know the first thing about clothes. I mean, she could be so much more attractive if just paid a little more attention to what she wore. Boy, I am so hungry. I must have walked 20 miles today. Well, you know, they say food is a substitute for lack of sex. Did you see Dr. Spago last night? Yeah, that was the movie I saw. I love the power of Rod Steiger. It's the best ever. I mean, Julie Christie's clothes are un... Ah! Shit! God damn it! Yeah, yeah, get rid of her, Michael. She's a fucking mental, clearly. Number 11. The late, great Corey Haim being all cute and cheeky and... ah, isn't he a cheeky little monkey? Ah. probably asking yourself right now why your younger and much smaller brother is apparently borrowing money from you. You little shit. Mike! Mike, don't do it! Mike! Mom! Mike! Give me the money. Here, take it. Go! What are you going to do? My mom's rose bushes! Oh, isn't he cheeky? He's chirpy and cheeky. He's chirpy and cheeky and he needs to smack around the face, the cheeky fuck. Number 12. Two parts here and another example particularly to me watching it now, is that the more interesting parts of the film actually focus on the adults rather than the kids. Hello? Hello, Liz. It's, it's George. Can you talk? I can talk. God, your voice sounds so beautiful over the phone. I've been thinking about you all week, too. Me too, George. But I just... Look, Liz... I just don't know how it's going to work. I mean, I just don't know how it's going to work. It can't. It can't. I, I like Connie too much. God, and I like Lou. And we're just not these kind of people, George. Oh, God, I know. I, sometimes I wish we were. I know, I know. So, so, so that's it then. We're doing the right thing, George. Yeah, yeah, I know. I know we are. I know. Well, <laughs> Well, enough. I'll see you around sometime. I'll see you Saturday. God damn, okay. Okay, Liz. Listen, if you're willing to take a chance, so am I. God damn it, I'll meet you Saturday, any place, anytime. No, George, it's Bridge Club Saturday. You and Connie are coming to our house. Holy shit. And here's the other two adults having essentially the same conversation. Lieutenant Fimple, Vice. I can't go through with that, Lou. Neither can I, Con. We're just not like him. And I've given it a lot of thought. Something inside me keeps saying, Hey, Fimple, what the hell do you think you're doing? You got a wife and kids, you're detecting it. Isn't that supposed to mean something? Well, sure it does. But that doesn't mean I don't think you're an attractive woman, Connie. You are a damn attractive woman. And 
this thing inside me weren't saying what it was saying, I'd be saying something else right now. Lou, shut up. I'm talking about Saturday night. Okay, fuck them. They're doing it to us, we'll do it to them. Saturday's fine by me. Where do you want to meet? Lou, I'm talking about Bridge Club. Bridge Club is Saturday night. We're having it at your house. You and me, him and her, all together at the same house at the same time. Bridge Club, right. That'd be the perfect time to blow this whole thing wide open. Like that. Like the same joke being given twice, but playing in a different way. Nah, it works for me. Maybe not for you. But you're wrong. Anyway, 13. George's slip of the tongue that sends Lou into an absolute frenzy. Although it is a bit of a stretch to have him mispronounce hors d'oeuvres in order to kick it all off. Mmm. Elizabeth, you've really outdone yourself on the affairs. <laughs> on the hors d'oeuvres. <laughs> the, 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 Hors d'oeuvres? Affairs? Affairs? Hors d'oeuvres? Yeah? Yeah? No. Number 14. And another great line from Fred Ward. I genuinely laughed out loud at this one. I know what you didn't do. Oh, I suppose you were there. As a matter of fact, I was. What are you talking about? What do you mean you were there? Since when did you start spying on people? Since always. It's my job. I'm a cop. And finally, number 15, Michael is racing to catch Laurie before she leaves forever. Well, all right, not forever, but the music's dramatic, the clock is ticking, and he's asking everyone at the dock how to get to the boat. And he stops next to a tanker and shouts up to a sailor. And the sailor, well, he's not American, but I'm not sure where he's from, to be honest. Excuse me, sir, can you tell me where the school of float is? Yo, yeah, yeah, no, 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 I'm going to go with Sweden. Looked like the ship was carrying cheeky Indoborskis. But yeah, Scandinavian of some sort. And that's that. Next, an hour on Jan Hammer. The soundtrack. Alright, maybe not an hour, but I make no apologies for being incredibly excited about sharing this section for you, as I am a massive fan of Jan Hammer, and have been since the heady days of staying up to watch Miami Vice as a young, impressionable kid. His work has stayed with me all the way I've grown up and he's truly a massive influence on my musical tastes. I just love him. Hammer was born in Prague in 1948. His mother was a well-known Czech singer and his father was a doctor who worked his way through school playing vibes and bass. Hammer began playing the piano at the age of four and his formal instruction started two years later. He aspired to follow his father into medicine until a family friend convinced him to develop his musical talents instead. Hammer formed a jazz trio in high school, performing and recording throughout Eastern Europe at the age of 14. He moved to the US in 1968 and joined the original lineup of the Mahavishnu Orchestra in 1971. A successful jazz fusion band, they performed some 530 shows before their farewell concert on December 30th, 1973. Hammer was one of the early pioneers of the Moog synthesizer, which became a staple instrument in 80s music. 
Hammer's solo career began with the release of The First Seven Days in 1975. He produced and recorded the album at Redgate Studio, which he'd built in his upstate New York farmhouse and which has been the location of his recordings ever since. The Jan Hammer Group was formed in 1976 and supported the first seven days on tour, receiving good reviews from both jazz and rock critics. The group turned out three LPs the following year, their own Oh Yeah and with Jeff Beck, Wired and Jeff Beck with the Jan Hammer Group Live, a chronicle of their 100-show tour together, which certified as a gold album. One final album by the group followed in 1977, titled Melodies. Hammer returned to solo work with the release of Black Sheep in 1978 and then went on to score two low-budget movies, A Night in Heaven in 1983 and Gimme an F in 1984. That year also saw his greatest challenge, when the producers of Miami Vice enlisted him to commence the rigorous weekly schedule of scoring the new series. The popular success of his music on the series was evident after just one season, when, on November 2nd, 1985, the Miami Vice soundtrack hit number one on the Billboard Top Pop album charts and stayed there for 11 weeks. The album achieved quadruple platinum status, with US sales of more than 4 million copies. At the Grammy Awards in February 1986, Miami Vice theme earned Hammer two awards, one for Best Pop Instrumental Performance and one for Best Instrumental Composition. He also earned Emmy Award nominations in 85 and 86 for Outstanding Achievement in Musical Composition. In 87, Hammer released Escape from Television, a collection of his various TV work, although mainly for Miami Vice, and it's one of my all-time favourite albums ever. The following year, he bowed out of full-time musical work on Miami Vice. Hammer's next two assignments, however, contributed greatly to his next solo album. First, at the end of the summer of 88, he was commissioned to compose and perform a theme entitled The Runner for a major series of TV adverts in England that starred Bob Geldof. Second, Hammer composed and performed the theme music for a bi-weekly pan-European TV series, Eurocops, which premiered in seven countries that November. Snapshots, featuring those two tracks, as well as a couple more lifted from Miami Vice, was the first full album from his new Redgate studio in 1989, with Hammer composing, performing and producing every track. 1990 and 1991 saw a renewed focus on scoring, starting with the utterly cheesy and yet utterly brilliant sci-fi action flick I Come in Peace, also known as Dark Angel in the UK, starring Dolph Lundgren and which features easily some of Hammer's best synth work. It's an absolute tragedy that no official score has ever been released. He scored all 20 episodes of the British TV series Chancer, several episodes of HBO's Tales from the Crypt, the pilot for NBC's Knight Rider 2000, and the movies The Taking of Beverly Hills and Sunset Heat. In 1992, Hammer's next project was as composer and performer of the original score for the CGI video album Beyond the Mind's Eye, which I fucking loved as a kid for both the soundtrack and the visuals. 1994 saw Drive, his first full-fledged album of original, new, non-soundtrack material under his name. More of a return to his jazz baits roots, and personally I'm not that keen. In 1996, and also through 2000, Hammer was commissioned to compose all the original music for TV Nova, the first commercial TV network in Eastern Europe based in the Czech Republic. He composed everything, including themes for 23 original shows produced by the network, 50 separate station IDs, the music for all the network special broadcasts, plus the music for all the news, sports and weather programmes. Busy, busy guy. In 2003, Hammer composed the score for the BBC TV series Red Cap, a military drama starring Tamsin Althwaite of EastEnders fame. It was as good as homemade BBC drama can get, i.e. not that much. 
He then produced the original score for Cocaine Cowboys, a 2006 documentary depicting the infamous Miami drug trade scene of the 1980s, harking back to the days of Miami Vice. Hammer's soundtrack of the film was released the following year, and it was a real return to form. Also in 2006, to coincide with the release of Michael Mann's movie reboot of the TV show, the massive hit Crockett's theme, which reached number two in the UK singles charts in 84, was re-released, with utterly shitty rapping over the top from an artist called TQ, who I've never heard of and I hope never works again. Miami Vice, The Complete Collection, was a double CD featuring previously unreleased works and released in 2002. It's now no longer available and it fetches a pretty price on eBay, I can tell you. Fortunately, I have a copy. I love Jan Hammer. I love his synth work. I love his soundtracks. Not so keen on his early jazzy stuff, but by Christ, put anything from Miami Vice on and chills run down my spine. You might be getting a double bonus content section from me at the end, the way this is going. And as for the secret admirer score, well, in all honesty, I think my rose-tinted glasses have been making this a better soundtrack than it actually is. It's been a long time since I've seen this film, and it turns out it's definitely not Hammer's best work by any stretch. There's quite a good little jingly fantasy-esque melody that plays whenever the letter's on screen, and there's the odd occasion when a hammer motif appears, you know, one of those synth sounds that crops up in the Miami Vice score that no one else ever seems to have emulated. It stands out to me as a big fan of his work, but it really isn't strong enough as a whole piece. It was never released as a score album independently, and that's probably for the best. There's also some occasions where some of his music plays on a stereo and it just doesn't fit with the action on screen, such as the bit in the clip section. I still think he rocks, just not in this movie. The next film. My dearest listener, I don't know how to tell you this any other way, so I'll just come out and say it. I love you. I love you so much. No, wait, I mean it's over. It's completely over and finished. As as in the episode, not us. There's always us. There's always been us. What the fuck am I saying? I have absolutely no idea. Anyway, that secret admirer, over and done with. Enjoy it. Ah, good. Yeah, I did as well. Although, probably not quite as much as I thought I was going to. So, let me just boot up my 80s computer and find out what's coming up next. Aha! Uh, excellent. You know I said I'd kill you last. I lied. Get in there, now I get to watch a proper film, and probably about as far away from Secret Admirer as you could probably get. Commando, starring one Arnold Schwarzenegger, released in 1985, featuring guns, explosions, knives, more guns, more explosions, some more guns, another explosion, and a knife, and a pipe going through someone's chest. I'm going to watch this with a large beer and a plate full of cooked meat. So remember, if you've got any feedback or suggestions, you can get hold of me at emem at hotmail.co.uk or via Twitter on at every80smovie. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. Bye-bye now. Listening to this, I don't know why I'm fucking bothering, just wasting time talking shit about shitty movies. Oh, hello! You're right. Didn't see you there.
Well, I think it's pretty bloody obvious what performer I'll be playing for you for your delectation in this episode's bonus content. But I'm actually going to give you some bonus bonus content. How about that, eh? It's two different pieces from the Miami Vice soundtrack. The Secret Admirer soundtrack just isn't strong enough a piece for me. And no, it's not the theme tune and Crockett's theme, because I'm sure you've heard all that more than once. And if you don't like any of these tracks, then I don't want to know you. So get out. Go on, get out of it. Get out of here. Uh, no, actually, no, no, come back, come back. Well, I didn't mean it. <laughs> it's just a joke. I really need the listeners. So, to start, here's a track called Payback, which was used in an episode of the same name and featured on the Snapshots album. It's classic moody hammer and featured over Crockett, played by Don Johnson, going into a prison to meet a drug dealer. It's everything I love about Hammer's work. It's moody, it's cool, it's dramatic, it's awesome. So enjoy.
And secondly, a two-part piece from the Escape from Television album titled The Trial and the Search. The first half is from the episode Golden Triangle. The latter is from a creepy episode called Tale of the Goat. Even though they're two separate pieces from two separate episodes, it works really well as a whole section and again demonstrates Hammer's ability to convey threat, mood and action. So here we go.
Once again, thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed it, and I hope you'll join me on the next episode. End of line. <laughs>